If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Which stories and historical periods should we be seeing dramatised on screen? What influence can historians have on how these stories are told? And how much does historical accuracy really matter to audiences? Well, on today's podcast, we've got a panel discussion all about period drama. Joining us from the worlds of history, film and TV journalism, our experts discuss the state of historical drama in the 21st century and what's coming next. Introducing the speakers and chairing the discussion was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Today's episode of History Extra podcast is uh, discussing what's next for period drama And we have a wonderful panel lined up for you today. And we're also going to be uh, jumping off some discussions that were already made in an online event at the University of Exeter in July 2021, which we'll talk about in a little while. But first of all, I'm going to allow uh, these wonderful panellists to uh, just say a little bit about themselves so you'll get to know them and their voices. And let's start with you, Amanda Ray Prescott. Hello, everyone. My name is Manry Prescott. I am a freelance journalist from New York City, and my specialty is covering the UK period dramas when they arrive in America. I write for a couple of different American outlets, including GBH Drama Club, which is uh, part of the PBS Masterpiece family, and Den of Geek, where all my Bridgerton reviews are host, Den of Geek US, I should say, uh, for all my Bridgerton interviews. So that's where I'm coming from the blogging slash reviewing perspective on period drama. Wonderful. Really looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Uh, and to uh, Anthony, you're, you're up next. Hello, uh, my name is Anthony Delaney and I'm an actor uh, currently working on Harry Wilde over in Ireland. And uh, I'm also a PhD researcher at the University of Exeter, um, where I am looking at queer domesticities in the 18th century. So I'm hoping to kind of blend the two worlds together a little bit with some of these discussions around period drama. Mm, Absolutely. Fantastic stuff. Uh, And finally, we've got Dr. Madeline Pelling. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Maddie Pelling. I am a historian of 18th century visual and material culture, uh, and I'm particularly interested in how that is translated to the 21st century screen in TV and film. So today's discussion is exactly in line with my interests. Fantastic. Well, uh, just a few of the things we're going to be talking about today are that what's a picture for historical drama in the 21st century and the stories that are being made at the moment. We're hopefully going to touch on some aspects of what matters to them, what stories are told and historical accuracy, how important that is. Um, But all of these have already been discussed at an online event, as I mentioned uh, earlier this year. Um, And Anthony and Maddie, you were both instrumental in setting this up. And I wonder if we could have... um, uh, a few words from yourselves first on what the aims of this event were. Uh, I think, Anthony, uh, perhaps we could start off with you. 
Yeah, sure. Um, so the event, What's Next for Period Drama, was held on the 9th of July. And we were looking to discuss if the period drama still has those associations of kind of Sunday night coziness, Sunday night escapism, or if it started to kind of fulfil a broader remit for audiences today, um, just in the wake of significant online and media discussions around shows like The Crown or Bridgerton. We just wanted to explore the relationship with period drama and how that kind of relates to historical accuracy, whatever that might mean, and how historians and curators might help inform these conversations and the productions. So the day was uh, spread over three events. The first was a keynote from Alex von Tunzelman, who is a historian and screenwriter. Um, we then moved on to the first panel, which was our storytelling storytelling panel with um, writer and producer Sarah Williams. Um, she has worked on The Long Song, Small Island and Becoming Jane. Um, that also included Amanda Ray Prescott, who we have with us today, and also Dr. Emrys Jones from King's College London. He's an English lecturer there and, and also works um, on the period drama. Uh, we were looking there to see what the kind of appetite for stories from, what, what kind of appetite there is for new stories from new perspectives, reflecting greater diversity on screen and behind the camera and in the writing room as well. And we rounded off the day then with uh, Maddie speaking to production designer Grant Montgomery, who's worked on uh, things such as Peaky Blinders, Sedition, and with Dr. Rosie Wayne from National Museum of Scotland. Uh, and they spent some time speaking together about building worlds, basically a panel where they discussed questions of accuracy and creative interpretation and the period drama's kind of relationship with the heritage in industry. So there's some really, really... Uh, positive and inspiring discussions actually that happened throughout the day. So um, yeah, we felt like it was a really, really worthwhile discussion. And there's something that really came out of the day, um, I think as a whole, was this idea that actually historians and screenwriters and producers and actors are essentially, you know, we're working in a very similar area, admittedly in different disciplines, but we're all interested in telling stories about the past. The tools with which we might tell those stories obviously vary enormously um, and our sort of our responsibilities or even aspirations to so-called historical accuracy um, vary enormously and rightly so. Uh, but th this, this sort of umbrella of storytelling um, is how we all kind of uh, came together and, and looked to kind of view the productions that we talked about and the historical periods that we talked about in this, through this lens. And if we can add on to that from the sort of academic perspective, Amanda Ray, you're you're coming at it as you say from a reviewer and a viewer perspective. Um, what, from your perspective, is the sort of situation for period drama right now, and what, if anything, needs to sort of be recognised and change? From my perspective, basically, we're in the middle of a transition period. There is a lot of people who still want the old, you know, all white, clean and crisp and escapist period drama, but now with streaming and broadcast going all over the world, people want to see period drama address their perspective, address their communities. And there's a constant tension between those two groups, whether it's in fan discussions online, even critics, because you have critics who are still sort of like, well, I want to see what I saw back in the day on here in America. PBS is kind of where a lot of the old school period dramas ended up. So they want to see that stuff continuing on into streaming. While there's a market for that, there's also a market for more diversity on and off screen. Uh, people want to see different 
perspectives from history, even something as simple as the eras we're all used to seeing. Why is it all just royalty stories? Why can't we have some working class dramas or anything revolving, you know, anything revolving people of color, LGBTQ folks? It's yeah, there's a huge demand for that. And I think certain voices in the audience have had dominated conversation for too long. And I think the industry is starting to listen to the diversity demands and expanded content. But of course, there's always a struggle with with money and what sells and what's not going to sell. It's always easier to go play it safe versus take a risk. So I also think the historical accuracy question is also a challenge because there are people who are even, even folks who are diverse, they still want to be like, well, I want all the costumes to be exactly from the era. But then there's also productions who challenge that by saying, hey, we're creating an alternate universe version of, say, the Sierra or 1920s, whatever era they're working on. So there's a tension between fantasy and historical and historical recreation and what audiences think historical actually looks like on screen, which doesn't always reflect what the industry can and can do, can't do on screen. A lot of folks are coming from this perspective, sort of from the historical costuming, living history side of things, where you can take two years to sew a single costume, but a production cannot do that in six months or whatever the timeline is. Like, they have to make several thousand costumes in six months versus you taking two years on your couch. It's a very different conversation. Absolutely. And I think um, those capabilities and, and aims of historical accuracy are a really interesting point that um, I think, well, I'm sure we'll go go on to discuss it in more detail. But if I can pick up on what you said about we're, being, we're in a period of transition, um, I'm interested to hear from all of you at the moment about what are the tools or processes that are beginning to be put in place or are, are the movements that are happening that are making these transitions possible and are seeing a bit of a change in what's being created or put forward to be created right now? Well, I think in terms of period drama, whatever is being made always reflects the period in which it's made and the people who are making it. Um, And this is true, you know, whether it was the BBC Pride and Prejudice in 1995 or Netflix's Bridgeton Today. And of course, they, whilst you might potentially group them in the same uh, you know they're both about the regency period they're both um, one is a Jane Austen and one is sort of Jane Austen inspired they're very very different um, works with different aims different um, sort of stories that they're telling I think period drama at the moment is becoming more sort of politically resonant Um, Outlander for example um, which is um, produced by stars came out first of all in the midst of the Scottish referendum for independence in 2014 Um, and since then it's completely changed the Scottish heritage landscape it's the the merchandise around it is you know on display in museum gift shops alongside replicas of real life historical objects Um, and things like the crown as well that Anthony mentioned at the start this a show like that is is partly so successful, not only for its brilliant acting, brilliant writing and the incredible set design, but also because we still have a culturally um, really honed in interest in the royal family that, you know, is um, very much present in this country, but is also an export around the world. So I think period drama is, it's reflecting, but also responding to cultural changes, social changes that are happening for better and worse. I think it's interesting to kind of, expand that as well to see 
you know, one of the questions that we were talking about on the day or, or one of the set of questions was not only what stories are getting made, but who gets to tell those stories and who are they being told for and who, who are they being sold to? Um, I think I think sometimes the target audience for the period drama can be a little bit myopic slightly. Like I think the audience is diversifying and therefore the audience is is crying out for more, you know, like Amanda Ray was saying, more content that reflects their lives, their experiences, as opposed to this kind of, we're using the term cosy, but I suppose one of the other terms that we could say is familiar. It's it's kind of like reinstating this version of the past. I think that's also quite an important thing, a version of the past. Um, that's one of the things I think period drama is at the forefront of trying to challenge slightly. Um, historians, curators, I think we try to do it in our work anyway. Um, history is a movable thing. Interpretations change. But the period drama can do that in a really, really immediate way for quite a large number of people where they are looking to diversify through whatever means or complicate or, you know, give a different perspective on something that we think we know, that we're that we think we're comfortable with. But actually within that comfort, you can often become just a little bit a little bit turgid in what is what actually what history can actually offer an audience. So some of the things that period drama is is offering is actually really exciting. Um, does it always get it right? No. Does that matter? I don't think so. I think I think it's a starting point. It's a conversation starter, and some of the conversations that are emerging from period drama right now, I think, are really really interesting historically and just in more ger- general terms from an audience perspective. Could, could we dig into some of those a little bit more? Some examples of of um, period drama that are particularly sparking those conversations at the minute. Um, well, I was struck recently. Um, I, I rewatched uh, Channel 5's Anne Boleyn, um, and I, I was really struck by the. the there's an opening gambit uh, that they kind of, you know, you often get the the little bit based on real events or whatever it is. Um, but but Anne Boleyn starts with inspired by truth and lies, which I thought was a really interesting opening way to go, right, what you're about to, to to watch here is inspired by historical events. But of course, the, the lies is so loaded, I think, because it's it's contemporary lies, it's it's 16th century lies, it's it's things that have come down to us. Uh, and I think it's highlighting that fact that there is not a single truth around these things. Um, and also, period drama is an artistic expression. It's not a museum piece, although, you know, as Maddie will talk about later, I'm sure it inspires those things. But it, it is a creative expression. And I think that's to be celebrated, not to be stifled. Um, I, I, coming back to Anne Boleyn as well, there was in, in the kind of press release uh, that was given out around the, the time that it was, it was being launched, I think it had something along the lines of, you may know the history, but you don't know her story. I thought that was an interesting distinction that they were making um, between history and story. Um, and I guess maybe what we were looking at talking around was where those two things meet um, on the day of the panel. And, I, you know, I, I still think there's an awful lot to be unpicked there. I think that's so true, Anthony. I think as well, period drama can actually expose the mechanisms of history as a discipline as well. And the way that we choose to tell a story, the evidence that we might choose to put to the forefront of our discussion and the evidence that we might choose to put aside or to overlook or to manipulate in some way. And of course, that is 
the very nature of history telling and storytelling more generally. Um, and I, another sort of a really interesting example of this would be some, a show like Outlander that involves time travel that obviously has magical elements to it. And so I don't think anyone sitting down to watch that expects to see history remade on screen in a in a sort of purest sense. Um, although, of course, how we rep- replicate a historical period on screen it's sort of impossible anyway. <laughs> you know, we, we can never go back there. We can never fully recreate it. Um, but Outlander in particular is an interesting show that includes characters who are historians. And it's interested in what happens if we go back in time and we actually get to live in that period and how perspectives in the centuries afterwards have shifted and continue to shift. And thinking specifically about something like Scottish history, which of course is at the heart of Outlander, the question of the Jacobite Risings and the Battle of Culloden as being this um, distinctly pivotal moment in Scottish history that um, supposedly uh, sort of erased all of Highland culture um, after uh, that came afterwards. You know, it's it's really interested in reviewing those beliefs, um, challenging people's perceptions of the past, as well as telling a dramatic story and character development and all of that. So period drama really has, I think, a role in challenging how we think about history, how we approach history and what we expect of it, both as a discipline and as a sort of public form of, of entertainment or, or sort of cultural memory as well. Amanda Ray, I, I wonder if... Uh... Just based on your kind of work, I, I wonder if you have any kind of insight between the relationship with the that the audience have between history and story. Is that something that you're seeing coming up an awful lot? Yes. Uh, is as a caveat, I have watched Anne Boleyn, even though I'm not supposed to, because we in America there's no official release date for it. But I saw it online, just putting it out there. <laughs> but I noticed on a Twitter hashtag because I love looking at what people are saying on social media. Most of the comments were all about Anne Boleyn is black. How dare you? It's not what you see in a museum. And I'm like, did somebody plant that idea in people's heads to then talk about it, to then create outrage in the UK press about it? Because there were all so many people talk about that and ignoring the actual story. Because from my perspective, I watched all three episodes and uh, and they, were, she, they made some interesting points about what we know about Anne Boleyn has been from people in an era with agendas and people who didn't like her. And that's kind of trickled down to now, but the show tried to show from her perspective, how she felt of about people in her space. And there was so little discussion about that online, except from, you know, a couple, there were a few diehard fans about that, but it was very odd to see that so much of the focus was this needs to be like a museum piece. How dare they? Which is kind of weird because six, the musical exists on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, so uh, it, of course, unfortunately pandemic has shut down the Broadway production for a bit, but there's already been non-white ambulance and pop culture. It's just very strange. And that was the, f- unfortunately, sometimes period drama becomes a culture war focus because of the fact that, Everybody has access to, you know, broadcast and streaming media. They're not going to pick up a book challenging those issues from the same way they're going to watch something on TV or on, you know, Netflix or whatever. Outlander is interesting, too, from a sense of an audience perspective. So much of the discussion in the, about Outlander these days is now... It's not so much about challenging history or what we know about it, but now that it's moved into American history more than anything else... It's 
actually lost a lot of its audience here because people find the American history stuff boring, quote unquote, or they're only interested in the like family relationships and the romance. They're like the questions of historical perspectives is very rarely brought up in fandom, which I wish people would talk about more because I like seeing how plots use history or, you know, turn it around or whatever they, whatever storytelling mechanisms are there. But it is interesting that Outlander here in America is seen as far less political because Scottish history, we don't really hear about it at all. So in in American history, I mean, there is still some, you know, discussion about that era, but I feel like most fans already have a pretty decent hold on what that era of American history should look like. So it's more so discussions about the alt history and the character relationships. It is, I would say the audience perspective sometimes is, it's helpful in sort of discussing what peer dramas bring out of it, but it's also not helpful if people are bringing in previous bias on what historical accuracy should look like, especially if they're coming from the especially the old generation period drama fans who expect things to look a certain way and for, you know, history to be told in a certain way. Yeah. It's, it's sort of, it is a challenge to even, sometimes it's a challenge to even gauge audience engagement on my end. Cause if people are not talking about it on social media, it's sort of hard for me to say what anything is, but thankfully with shows like Amblin and Outlander, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things to, for people to say. Trying to think of another example of a show recently, like discussing history. I, I wanted to ask um, about Sanditon in particular because I know that's obviously a, a sort of a subject. And Austin, you know, people have loved Austin historically. It's been so well received historically uh, as you know a subject ripe for period drama. But Sanditon made some different choices, sort of in the latest um, Austin adaptation. I wanted to, wanted to maybe talk about that as an example. I have been in the trenches of Sanders and fandom since the beginning. And it is interesting to see how at first in the UK, so much of the reaction was negative because Andrew Davies made some interesting choices regarding physical affection on screen, uh, introducing Georgiana Lamb, which people didn't realize was a Jane Austen character initially. But then because he's a white man writing a, black woman character at this time period he doesn't have all the nuance to tell a story but then fandom kind of completely either ignored that or was happy to have that because they're so focused on the main character charlotte's story and they were her relationship with sydney and all that it's 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 a very but then of course you have the fandom now missing the point by six miles, depending on who you talk to about uh, all the political and social issues that show brings up. There's a lot of subtlety and stuff they miss. There's also um, issues of racism within the fandom. I've had to fight people. I had to fight people about a lot of things from how they talk about Georgiana to using the pineapple that was a symbol of colonialism on the show, but online they're using the pineapple emoji like, oh, it's going to be a cute representation show. No, it's not. In this, other fandoms that use a pineapple for no, it was fine, but this show, it's about slavery and colonialism. Why would you do that? So I've been fighting this battle 
uphill for over a year. Yeah, sanitation for me is a very complicated subject. But I will say in terms of accuracy, it does bring up some interesting, because it does, it, it dances the line of recreating Austin and telling a different perspective at the same time. So it's sort of, but it, it just creates a lot of interesting reactions in fandom, especially over here in the United States, where we, people are so used to the traditional Austin dramas on PBS, and now it is also on PBS here. So it's sort of like telling, it's very, it looks very different visually. Even though they're using many of the same locations, it just looks visually different because Andrew Davis is kind of in, filling in more of his own ideas on the era versus what Jane herself wrote. I mean, I think Sunderton is a really interesting drama for several reasons, particularly because it's now part of the sort of the Austin on-screen canon. Um, And it's something that I've done quite a lot of work on, actually. And and talking on the day that we, that Anthony and I organised, we spoke to Grant Montgomery, who is the set designer for, amongst other things, Sanditon. Um, And he spoke about having really a sort of imaginative freedom when it came to representing Sanditon on screen, because obviously it's one of Austin's lesser known novels. It's an unfinished novel. And so it doesn't have the same sort of structure and form that audiences might expect. There isn't the convenient marriage in its conclusion necessarily. We don't know what Jane Austen was intending to write. Um, And so in terms of the way that the world is built, the way that it looks, a lot of it was shot in uh, in studio um, and entire buildings, streets, interiors were all created from scratch. And I think in this country in particular, we have a real sort of expectation, particularly when it comes to Jane Austen, that the locations for filming will be things like Chatsworth, like Lime Park, which was famously Pembley in 1995 and Pride and Prejudice. And actually, when we don't see those those buildings, those heritage sites on screen, there is a sort of... uh, a, a pushback, I guess, um, and a, a sort of surprise from the audience that we're not seeing what we would necessarily expect to. Um, and for me, I mean, I thought Sanderton was really exciting. I thought it was really refreshing. Um, and as Amanda Ray says, you know, it's a novel that includes the only named, excuse me, the only named um, character of colour in any Austen story. And so it's, I think it's really telling as well that it's taken until 2020 into 2021 for this to come on our screen. Um, and also picking up the point about the sort of physical intimacy that's shown on screen, I think because it's come out around the same time that Bridgerton has on Netflix, there's another sort of landscape to consider here in terms of competitive productions and, you know, Bridgerton and Sanderton are in lots of ways fighting over the same audiences. And so how they're produced and what they might look like on screen if they come out at a similar time is is very telling, I think. I think some of these um some of these conversations kind of feeds back into that what stories are getting made by who and for whom. You know, it's I thought it was really interesting the way Amanda Ray was referencing some of the kind of nuances that were problematic and successful within Sanditon and for me personally, Austin doesn't excite me all that much, I'm afraid, but that's fine. That's just a personal thing. I, uh, I, I'm i really intrigued to see um, 
there's there's a, an adaptation coming out in the next couple of years, I think, uh, called The Confessions of Franny Langton, um, which is adapted by Sarah Collins from her novel, the same name. And that is, the reason I'm interested in that is because it is a Black author and therefore a Black screenwriter and telling the story of people of colour in the past. And I just think there's something really valuable about that contribution that can just heighten some of the conversations that we're having at the moment that that makes it a little bit more interesting, more nuanced, more worthwhile. Um, I, I, again, I thought it was, it's really interesting sometimes to look at the press releases for some of these things as they're, as they're being pushed forward. Um, and within the one for Franny Langton, ITV had said that, it, it directly said that it's his, historically authentic. And I thought that was a really interesting take to go, oh, it's based on fiction. So that's an interesting thing to put in there. And then if you if you kind of unpack that a little bit more, it's like, why is that a selling point? Why does historical authenticity, what, why, why does the press office think that that's something that needs to be pushed forward when we come to talk about the period drama, especially when it's based on fiction? Um, you know, who is that for? Is that for the audience? Is that to show the kind of robustness of, of the material? It, it, I, I think it's really, really intriguing. It seems to be this thing that's put on a pedestal slightly where it's it's going, this is as true to fact as we think it could possibly be, um, which of course is alarm bells for historians because you go, I'm writing 100,000 words on something and I can't be that certain about, you know, some of the things that's that, that's going in there. Um, and I think that's where, I think that's where it comes in to this kind of personal thing. Um, one of the things that struck me about our conversation on the day was something Amanda Ray said about the historical drama being incredibly personal and fulfilling a thing about kind of personal identity for each of us individually and then obviously wider collectively. Um, so, you know, some of these, some of these more complex narratives that are about to come out that I'm hoping we see more and more of, I think it'll be interesting to see where these discussions evolve once they appear, once we've had a chance to see them. I would add to that as well. I think, you know, we're talking about period drama is undergoing this huge sea change and we're kind of standing at a crossroads where on the one hand we have audience expectations in terms of traditional costuming, filming locations, the props must be accurate. And often there is surprise expressed and that's in best case scenario. Um, in, if there are characters of colour included or LGBTQ um, characters, um, which of course should come as no surprise that people who were not white and heterosexual existed in the past. And I think, Anthony, that's very interesting that you say that in, in the case of the drama you're talking about, there's this um, sort of caveat that it is his so-called historically accurate. And I think it can often act as a sort of justification for presenting stories from other perspectives, because there is still that surprise that history was not all about aristocrats and it was not all about white people. And I think there's, hopefully we will see more and more stories told from different perspectives, but this question of accuracy on the one hand, um, you know, we're putting in characters and perspectives that we haven't seen before, but are, are actually drawn from the past. And then on the other hand, there is um, sort of creative casting choices and things like that, which aren't necessarily reflecting historical period, thinking of Anne Boleyn, you know, she historically speaking was not a black woman, um, but that is kind of doing 
not not a similar thing, but it's it's also challenging what we expect of the period drama. And I think both of those roots, both of those ways of presenting the past have real value. And I think we're going to continue to see that in the coming years, possibly decades, and rightly so. What I thought about Franny Lantern's press release, because I looked, I think that's a signal to the people who are critics of Bridgerton specifically, that it's historically accurate, because Bridgerton, of course, is based on Julia Quinn's romance novels. They had no intentions of even whatever Netflix, before Netflix decided to, you know, present Bridgerton, there was no intention in that novel of being remotely historically accurate. Like everything was very vague in terms of the costume descriptions from the characters. That was sort of a clue that, hey, just because we have Black people here, it this is from real history. So if you hated Bridgerton, come watch our show, which is pretty much what I think that press release is trying to say. It, it's pretty much catering to the critics of Bridgerton who thought that it should have featured more actual Black history versus, or, you know, history people call her versus just something that was made up from a romance novel. That's kind of what I interpreted it as, which it does have a point. Like, we do need more pure dramas from Black screenwriters on both sides of the Atlantic that aren't always focusing just on slavery, because that's what happens here in America a lot, is that you often get the civil rights stories and, you know, the history of racism and slavery, but we don't always get those social histories or things that aren't necessarily political, could just the everyday life story. We never, we it's very rare to get productions like that. So that's sort of where I interpreted it's more so a signal to the audience versus a signal to reviewers, I would say. I'm actually curious to, it's interesting, they did not indicate anything about international distribution in that release too, which I always find intriguing because there's always clues about what they're trying to tell the audience based on where this is coming, so going. So it's kind of interesting. I guess they're still working on that, but I always find those details intriguing because not just to plan my own coverage, but also sometimes you can tell things about audience demographics and what they're trying to, what story they're trying to say if they include those details in there. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think there's a real appetite for those, all those comment pieces, you know, the real history behind the crown, behind Bridgerton, whatever it is. And, you know, I've authored several of those myself, so I'm kind of guilty. Here. But, yeah, exactly. But I think there's there's an interest, and actually I think there is a responsibility um, for historians to, to comment more and more on these productions. So if the conversation has moved on then from so-and-so was holding their teacup incorrectly or, uh, you know, the wrong type of carriage was spotted in the background or something like that, which it sounds like it very much has. What then are the priorities that came out of um, both this event in July and that you're getting a sense of now? What are historians and screenwriters seeking to do and what do they think about audience intent? Is it to to educate, to inspire, as a jumping off point into a new window of history? I think... Um... There's, there's always kind of a, a multi-layered response, isn't there? There's different, different sectors, different people, different things want, uh, different people want different things. I, I think one of the things that came out, and I'm sure uh, Maddie and Amanda Ray will will have other things to add to this as well, because there were so many things. But one thing that stood out to me was kind of this uh, push for collaboration rather than just consultation with, um, with historians in the period drama. I mean. You know, as an actor and historian, 
I've had conversations across both sectors where you hear people who historians who might make very good producers on something, might make very good screenwriters. Um, I think there needs to be more done to help uh, historians and academics to know how to pitch these types of things, to know how to have those conversations with studios, with um, with execs, with other screenwriters that they might collaborate with. So that was, that was one thing that it's not necessarily just about... Um, you know, calling in a historian at the last minute because if you look at if you look at the work of you know Jacqueline Riding and Mike Lee, that that feels like true collaboration. Um, it feels like a really fruitful and and you know Mike Lee's work, Mike Lee's period dramas are are really really strong. When when I I think a lot of historians actually quite enjoy it, and that that's a big thing because historians don't often enjoy period drama; they find it quite stressful to watch. So, um, yeah, I think if we can have more of that, that's not necessarily to promote more historical accuracy, mind. That's to just broaden the stories that can be told and and do it in a historically grounded way, but use it as a creative launch pad. Um, yeah, I think that, that the relationship between Mike Lee and Jacqueline Riding is a really interesting one, actually. Um, well, we spoke a lot on the day about... The, the sort of the lead up to productions being released, um, quite literally their production from you know the earliest stages of them being conceived, uh, the writing and obviously on, on set shooting, set design and all that. But also we spoke about the afterlives that period dramas have and actually how people engage them, specifically how historians and curators engage them actually once they have come out, I think is, is really interesting. Um, and one of the, the sort of main examples of this that we, we spoke about was um, Grant Montgomery's work on To Walk Invisible, which, uh, as I'm sure listeners will know, uh, was the drama um, written by the brilliant Sally Wainwright that was about um, the Bronte siblings and specifically looked at um, Bramwell Bronte, who's um, the brother of, of the famous three sisters, um, and his um, battle with addiction and um, his, his sort of downfall, really. Um, and as part of the work that Grant did on that production, he actually created... Um, not only at a scale replica of the Bronte Parsonage itself, which was built in a, a car park in Yorkshire, um, because they essentially obviously couldn't film in the Parsonage itself, which is a, a museum visitor centre now, um, and is therefore protected and not open necessarily to um, film crews stomping all over it. Um, but, you know, so so he, he made that, but he also made, um, and this was weeks months after the production had aired, he made a version, an imagined version of Bramwell Bronte's bedroom, um, which had a bed, it had artworks um, that Bramwell was finishing, it had a replica of one of the metal collars that belonged to the children's dogs growing up. Um, and that was placed in the real life parsonage as sort of um, an extension of the exhibitions that are actually on show there. And I think it's a really interesting intervention in the heritage space, actually. And it's a way of expanding how we imagine the worlds of the past. It wasn't presented as, you know, as fact. It was very much an art installation within a space that also deals with objects related to the Brontes that they really used, they really lived with. Um, and I think we'll hopefully, hopefully see more of that um, going forward and, and the sort of relationship that period dramas can have to museums. You know, we're all familiar with, um, especially 
when it comes to Austin. Sorry, Anthony, to go back to Austin, but you <laughs> oh, know, <dear>. often, the, <laughs> often the costuming from those kind of productions ends up on display in the filming locations um, where, where those productions have been shot. And actually expanding that into more creative ways of, of responding to, um, to productions and also kind of expanding their legacies uh, I think is is really exciting, and I think it's something that curators um, and historians working as consultants are really open to. Actually, that's such an interesting two way street. The way that historians can inform into into period drama and then see those interpretations fed back into historical sites that's so interesting. Um, and I, and I wanted to ask, forgive my ignorance on this point, but is there any sort of pathway or process that exists at the moment for you know historians to go move forward with this consulting or is this an ad hoc basis or by versa you know should this more be coming from the production companies and the people who are making the drama what what was that take i think i i one of the one of the things i said on the day which i think is maybe new to historians sometimes is not to wait to be asked to dance um sometimes it's it's about taking the step forward and going look I'm here. I can. I, I, I'm a vet. I, I have this idea potentially, and yeah, that involves some rejection. That involves some, uh, you know, uh, some some setbacks at times. But it might actually, if it's something you're genuinely interested in, kind of diversifying the way that you engage with your research and and disseminating your your research, then have those conversations. You, I think, from my own experience, you'll find that a lot of execs, a lot of developmental uh, people, are looking to have those conversations at the very least. Look, I'm not saying every historian's going to end up with a period drama in their credits, but, you know, it's, it's. I think they're conversations people are willing to have at the moment, at the very least, and see where they can go. In terms of any kind of formal training or kind of pathways, um, I, I could be wrong, but none that I'm aware of. There's, there, are, there are quite a few for, for factual. And I think that's interesting too, right? Because it's kind of going, this is where historians should live. This is how historians can inform what we see on our screens, either through um, factual docu. Uh, well, there's docudramas now as well. You see, so that's that that kind of middle ground. Um, but yeah, th- there's plenty of training schemes for for historians to branch into factual, but not so many that might uh, kind of help inform their input into period drama or drama generally. Um, and I think. That's just, as far as I'm aware, and maybe Maddie, you could speak a bit more to this if you know more than I do. But the, the, it, it, that seems to be a kind of a network thing where there are a few historians. Alex von Tulsman is, is an example, I think, who is working across both. You also then have historians whose work, whose factual work, is informing, um, you know, something like Harlots. Um, Harry Rubenhall's um, book was the kind of source material for that. So there's there's lots of examples for that. But in, in some of those cases, um, not all, but in some of those cases, the historian kind of takes a back seat. I think there's room for more of a front row seat there for historians where, you know, it's it's not just based on the book buy, but there's producer credits there too. There's potentially screenwriting collaboration to be done so that the world is a bit more complex, a bit more nuanced, and um, I think ultimately more enjoyable for the audience. No, I agree. And I think there are so many historians at the moment engaging in this kind of work. Um, another historian who comes to mind is Hannah Gregg, who is the consultant, um, amongst other things, for uh, for Bridgerton. And I think she also worked on Poldark. Um, but interestingly, in looking at it from a different direction, 
I think, and, and picking up, Anthony, what you're saying about how there is formal training that exists within um, universities for factual programming, actually, and there are things like the um, the BBC New Generation Thinkers Scheme, um, but that but there doesn't exist the same training necessarily um, to work on to work on drama, certainly not from a historian's um, point of view, and I think part of that is is also that um, within the academy itself people, scholars, are are not as engaged in these modes of of storytelling, actually, and and maybe don't treat drama with the same same interest or the same sincerity as as factual programming. I would say that's changing um, a lot, actually, and it's something I'm doing in my own work, and, and, and multiple other people are, you know, trying to understand how their the periods that they work on appear on screen um and how they're sort of understood in terms of popular culture um and more more broadly represented so that there is a shift there as well and i think as that develops people um who are working as historians will um look more and more to the period drama and hopefully the conversations will continue to to kind of happen you know across both sides of the street as it were and and that will be a sort of a dialogue between the different industries from the audience perspective i hope that happens because so often what ends up happening is people see something and are like oh they just made these mistakes on purpose they don't realize that there are historians who are being paid to at least consult with production like they can't always t- take that advice but usually the historian by the time it gets to the screen is left completely out especially in these international productions where like, for example, Bridgerton, like most people in America never heard of Hannah Gregg's work until she was citing a couple articles. And then people were just like, Oh, she's just there. Like where was she to, to, to point out that the costumes are all wrong. <laughs> like it's, it's kind of, you still have people who are talking about that. But I think if people knew that how the production process worked and how historians could contribute to things and what they can't contribute to, because for example, if it's based on a novel, the authors, whatever the author wrote at some point is going to be influenced. They don't have to take all that what that was in the book originally, but if it's based on a novel, like there's a lot there that historians can't really speak to in terms of screenwriting. Like you have to, the, characters already have a trajectory that fans expect to be followed but i do hope more things happen because i think a lot of times the audience assumption is often what productions did wrong versus what history can be used to tell a certain story and i hope that's kind of I have no easy answer on that topic but i just hope it happens because i think so often people want to point out what's you know, wrong from, it's not really wrong, it's just different ways of thinking. I think there's a real appetite for those, all those comment pieces, you know, the real history behind the crown, behind Bridgerton, whatever it is. And, you know, I've authored several of those myself, so I'm kind of guilty. Here. But I, yeah, exactly. But I think there's, there's an interest. And actually, I think there is a responsibility um, for historians to to comment more and more on these productions and to discuss, you know, if a show like Bridgerton, you're absolutely right, Amanda Ray, that it it's based on historical fiction. It's not necessarily trying to replicate an accurate Regency world on screen. And yet the, the this sort of creative approach of a programme like that 
is really fascinating. The mechanisms of how that is made, the decisions that it makes in terms of the history that it chooses to represent and the history that it overlooks or actively erases um, is really important and actually can then lead a huge, broad audience who wouldn't necessarily be reading you know, history books or academic articles about that period it leads them to consider some of these questions. And I think the more historians can get involved in guiding those conversations and contributing to them, um, you know, the more the merrier. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's important work, actually. And we've said again and again, haven't we, that there's this idea that the period drama doesn't have to be accurate. It doesn't have to be historically authentic, whatever that means. But on the flip side of that, there seems to be an appetite for that. There seems to be some kind of demand that there is a, some kind of historical grounding going on in there, um, which is, I think, one of the reasons why when Maddie and I initially had discussions around doing something about this, it was like, it seems like the natural person or people to start joining those conversations up might be historians. And then it's just a conversation of how we can do that more in a more meaningful way and, and in a way that adds those layers to the period drama. And I think, as Amanda Ray was saying, now is a re- seems to be a really, really pivotal moment for period drama and how it's kind of reflecting activism and it's become an act of activism itself. And I think the more historians can inform that, not necessarily just after the fact, not, not just, you know, saying, well, this didn't happen, this didn't work, blah, blah, blah. But in the beginning going, how, you know, kind of facilitating discussions in pre-production about how we can get that world to translate onto screen in, an, in a creative, engaging way. That, to me, seems too exciting to ignore, really. I think the possibilities are really, really tantalising for that. Absolutely. Well, uh, you've already um, mentioned so many fascinating discussions that it sounds like they were started and continued at this event at the University of Exeter. Um, but if I can ask you a few fi- to offer a few final thoughts on next step or uh, period drama as a genre, that would be great. Amanda Ray, perhaps we could uh, I can ask you first. My goal, because I review what I'm also probably, I should probably consider myself an activist at this point because I've been one of the first folks on the U.S. side to kind of take the case on like, hey, there are audiences of color here that you've kind of ignored. We've watched all of the things on BBC and ITV, whatever else, the whole time. But hey, can we have some of ourselves here? Uh, So I think the next step for sure is to show producers that even if you make mistakes on representation or other issues if you can keep trying because there are people who appreciate it that's i think that was sort of the even though sanderson was messy and so was british and i feel like other productions can come along and follow that i mean we already see franny langton we also mr malcolm's list which is was the short film and now it's coming a movie uh i'm assuming next year because they just wrapped up production it's a sort of another romance novel but diverse casting stab at the regency so let's see how the full film goes because nine minutes isn't really enough time to really see where things are going so that i want to see more of that i also want to see productions addressed i would particularly a younger audience because i'm in my mid-30s and i feel like so often the marketing and the pr for pure drama is always aimed at 
folks who are at least 10 years older than me, if not more. And I feel like using the power of social media to, because first of all, fans are going to go back and this is something you don't realize. Fans are going to go and read the history books if you allow, if you give them enough in the plot to want to find out more. This is it. Hey, this is, you're missing an easy opportunity to sell books here or sell tickets to museum. Like you have to, even costuming too, like you, like Outlander Merchant mentioned earlier, like folks are a Bridgerton uh, dress collaboration sold out in two hours. Like <laughs> you guys are missing out on so much uh, opportunities, not engaging the public in a more active way. And also don't be afraid of social media. <laughs> it's, it's so there a lot of the audience conversations not happening in the print or, or newspaper press. Like you have to go on social media and figure out what people are t- saying. Even as far as TikTok, like there, there are pure job reviewers on TikTok. So sometimes you mock the scenes or mock the characters, but you know, there's still public opinion that you can work in there. And I, that would be part of my main things, more representation and more engaging younger audiences. I think that's why Bridgerton was so successful because Netflix knows how to market to folks who are active on online, like even pure people who've never seen pure drama before picked up Bridgerton really, really quickly because it broke so many of the boundaries of the genre. And I think it's okay. You can break the rules. It will be, it's, it's, it's fine. That's sort of, I do know it's particularly the representation angle is difficult, such in the UK because the, the uh, demographics are definitely different. Um, But I do hope that these conversations and thinking about international audience too, I think those need to be, that needs to be now more active in the pre-production stages yeah, those sort of my wishes. More representation, more engagement with audiences before and after production, and are not just like pushing trailers out on social media, but and also just different stories being told. Absolutely. Um, perhaps uh, Anthony, if I can come to you next. Yeah, I would echo a lot of what Amanda Ray said. Really, um, for me, yeah, let's take let's let's take risks. Let's see what happens when you bring somebody who has never even watched a period drama into the room as head screenwriter or as somebody who's interested in telling a particular story that we are not even aware of yet. And in that same vein, talk to historians and historians push yourselves forward. It, it, we, we know the stories, you know, collectively. We, we sit on them. We have them. We research them intimately. Um, I, I'd be really interested on a personal level of seeing more stories that come from kind of queer literature, queer history, um, represented, uh, on, on screen, um, looking as well at what the gaze is there in terms of, uh, it's, it's a really interesting thing that a lot of the period dramas that deal with LGBTQI plus histories are, uh, female led. And there's something to be said there about male gaze and who, what those films are communicating to whom and for whom. Um, and also more representation within those lead roles, queer actors, actors of colour, telling their own stories, being in charge of that narrative or at least being involved in that narrative. Um, so yeah, risk-taking, cons- uh, collaboration over consultation, I think, and not being afraid to get it wrong because 
once that fear sets in, it becomes not a creative process anymore. So uh, take the risk, put put grime music in there. Let it be totally, you know, soundtracked by something that is not historically accurate. Absolutely, by all means. Design the gowns differently. Like, give us something exciting and see where that can take us. It won't always be correct, but I think it's worthwhile. I mean, I think as a as a historian of visual material culture in particular, I am always most excited when people do treat costuming and props and set design in a creative way, actually. And I think what I'd like to see going forward, um, as well as you know, echoing the calls that you've both made for for this greater diversity and history told from multiple perspectives. I'd like to see historians more generally engaging with period drama um, and not just to point out the the historical inaccuracies necessarily, but to have a discussion around the creative decisions that were made and to think more deeply and more broadly about period drama as a form of public history um, and how we can maybe harness that and um, use that to platform some of our own research and to draw attention to the stories that we know exist in the past um, and that deserve to be to be told. Our panellists for today's discussion were Amanda Ray Prescott, Anthony Delaney and Maddie Pelling. To read an article that Maddie and Anthony wrote for our website, along with plenty of other features about inspirations and stories behind the dramas on our screens at the moment, visit historyextra.com forward slash history hyphen TV hyphen film. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow for a discussion on the rise and fall of the Berlins. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.